Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security. I'm Shane Harris, but I am not here with you this week. I'm away on vacation, and in my absence, my good friends Ben Wittes and Tamara Kaufman Wittes are holding down the fort at the podcast. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the empty chair edition. Despite our misery at Shane's absence, we must go on. I'm Tamara Kaufman Wittes, playing host for the day, and joined today, as always, by my colleague, Ben Wittes. Hey. Ben. Hi. Do you miss Shane? I miss Shane so much. He's off in Maine where it's cool and we're sweltering here. And, uh, you know, as much as it is uh, fun for you to be guest hosting, uh, I miss Shane. Yeah. Come back, Shane. Come back, Shane. I know you don't like me guest hosting. and That's okay. I'm not sure I like it either. And we're also joined today by our Brookings colleague, Daniel Blyman. Hello, Dan. Hello. I'm... Pleased and actually a little surprised, to be honest. <laughs> We're not surprised. We've been trying to get you on the podcast for a long time. Glad you could join us. So today, as always, we have three topics of exceptional importance to discuss. First, is the war in Afghanistan over? Second, what's the difference between terrorism and war? And finally, the president's argument for the Iran deal, which he made in a major speech at American University this week. Was it good enough? And in Object Lessons, Chairman Mao and Dan's participation in the war in Yemen. So let's get started. Ben, why don't we start with you? Um, boy, I, I think from the American people's perspective, the war in Afghanistan is over so long that we almost forgot about it. Well, um, if you were a Guantanamo detainee named Mukhtar Yahya Naji al-Warafi, uh, you would have been hoping this week that uh, Judge Royce Lamberth of the D.C. Uh, District Court uh, here in Washington would have felt the same way. And you would have argued before him that the president had said as much when he said um, in, for example, a number of speeches on uh, December 15th of last year, this month after more than 13 years, our combat mission in Afghanistan will be over. Uh, our com and later in January, our combat mission in Afghanistan is over, and America's longest war has come to a responsible and honorable end. And on Memorial Day, since our war in Afghanistan has ended, and that in Afghanistan our troops now have a new mission, training and advising Afghan forces, you would think that those arguments would give you a pretty strong basis for arguing to a court that, hey, the end of hostilities has arrived, and therefore the legal authority to detain me, which depends on there being active hostilities, uh, has lapsed. However, Judge Royce Lamberth, in a poetic little expression, writes, War is not a game of Simon Says. And the president's position, while relevant, is not the only evidence that matters to this issue. This, of course, raises the question of whether this is the first time in the U.S. reports that the game Simon Says has ever been invoked. 
It, um, it's also striking that a federal judge is saying that the president's declaring a war to be over does not mean it's over. Correct. It's a, it's a very interesting. So Lamberth kind of rejects the idea that it's purely a political question whether the war is over, and he cites uh, a number of objective factors. Um, and um, so, of course, and of course, he's doing this at the behest of the Justice Department, which works for the president, right? So the president says the war, the war is over for political consumption, but that doesn't mean the Justice Department wants it to be over for legal purposes. So the, the executive branch is sort of talking out of both sides of its mouth. Um, but Lamberth writes, in support of this conclusion, Respondents, that's the Justice Department, have submitted, among other things, a signed letter from the president dated June 11th, 2015, in which he says that, quote, there are approximately 9,100 U.S. forces in Afghanistan for purposes of training, advising, and assisting Afghan forces conducting and supporting counterterrorism operations against the remnants of al-Qaeda and taking appropriate measures against Taliban members who directly threaten U.S. and coalition forces or provide direct support to al-Qaeda. The president's letter goes on to say, quote, the United States currently remains in an armed conflict against al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and associated forces, and active hostilities against these groups remain ongoing. Um, so the president said... I didn't mean what I said in my speeches. The war is not a. I think that's right. I think I think what the um, president said in the speeches is one thing, and he turned around and told a U.S. federal court something that is, you know, at least atmospherically quite different from that. Um, and I think it's a really interesting illustration. It's a very interesting question from the judge's point of view. Which statement? you know, binds the court, right? Does this mean that any place where we have a military training advisory mission, we can kind of finagle into being a war zone? Or any place where American soldiers might face hostilities? Right. So I think, you know, I think we certainly wouldn't claim it vis-a-vis um, places where there are not still active hostilities, but, you know, it's an interesting question. You know, we have 30,000 troops in Korea or something. Right. Um, and Well, even if you look at terrorism-related places, we have, you know, forces that have been in the Philippines. We have forces in small batches in Africa. There's a, a long list of this. You know, so it's a very interesting question, and I think the answer is that the United States uh, hasn't claimed that sort of thing, and were it to do so... Under Lamberth's opinion, first of all, a court would have the authority to review that claim, which is an interesting proposition. And secondly, uh, he takes a rather broad view of what it means for hostilities, or a, a broad view of what it means for hostilities to still be going on. Can I, uh, to what extent um, does the existing authorization for the use of military force, AUMF, guide the court in this regard. I mean, the president can say whatever he wants in a speech, but there's an AUMF that was passed by Congress that has no expiration date. And so the president can say, well, I've got authority to keep fighting al-Qaeda because Congress gave it to me. You know, is, is that what leads Lamberth to this conclusion, or is it simply conditions on the ground? So it's an excellent question. It's a bit of both. So the AUMF is the domestic law authority. 
but the detention authority here is partly a matter of international law. And international law, under international law, the detention authority only persists as long as there are active hostilities. And Lambert's point is that that's an objective question. Um, now, it is fair to say, I think, when the United States still has forces on the ground in Afghanistan that are still, in some sense, fighting, and they still do take casualties, they still do have some degree of operations, that is probably uh, right. But there's something odd and dissonant about the president saying out loud in big public speeches, the war is over, and then secretly or somewhat secretly sending a letter to the judge and saying, Psst, you know, not really over, not over in I the sense really that you it. should listen My to. My fingers were crossed. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nobody tell Ben Rhodes, right, <laughs> that the war is actually still going on. Um, and we will we will come back around to this question of uh, of wars and how long they last. Um, but you know, last week I brought in my awesome swag from the Aspen Security Forum, which I know you were sad not to not to get yourself, Ben. And I was really sad, by the way, that Raytheon did not call us up and and announce that they were going to sponsor Rational Security in response well, to your pitch. You know, maybe like the Aspen Security Forum, we need to have really cool water bottles that have the Rational Security logo on one side and Raytheon's logo on the other side. Maybe then they would come in on it. We need some swag of our own, some Rational Security swag. But Dan, you brought in some awesome swag this week from the National Counterterrorism Center. You want to tell us about it? Um, this is an object that my wife calls the most tasteless bit of government bling she has ever seen. Uh, it is a National Counterterrorism Center calendar. And for really almost every day or every day, they have some event that happened in the history of terrorism and counterterrorism. So today is August 5th, and just a few items. Uh, in 2009, Beitullah Massoud was killed. Um, in 2003 in Indonesia, there was the car bombing in the Marriott Hotel in Jakarta that killed 13. And so every God, day so you get to wake up to something kind of you know, memorable and exciting, it jolts you awake. So it's like a word-a-day calendar, but it's a terrorist attack-a-day calendar? It's kind of a terrorist attack-a-day calendar. But sometimes yes. it's an attack on terrorists calendar. Uh, that's right. There's kind of the good side and the bad side. Right. Wow. We, we really need to total that up and see who wins over the course of the year. <laughs> well, you know, it'd be fascinating also to use this as the arbiter for judicial decisions on whether we're at war or not. <laughs> when the NCTC runs out of things to put in the calendar, the war will be over. Uh, that's probably as good a definition as any I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let me tell you about this thing, because what's fascinating to me in it is not just the litany and almost endless of horrible things that have happened in the world, but there's a really difficult analytic question buried in here. Uh, you see things, for example, on... Um, the uh, tomorrow, uh, August 6th, uh, where they talk about attacks that happened um, in Congo during the Civil War. Um, and there's an analytic question, which is, how do we treat things we'd call terrorism, that is, politically motivated violence that's trying to have a psychological effect uh, done by a non-state group? How, how do we treat that when it's done in the context of Civil War? Because what scholars are, have been recognizing is every single group in a Civil War uses what we would call terrorism. It's almost impossible to avoid. There are almost always some attacks on civilians, especially when we call 
uh, people like policemen, civilians, what we call diplomats, civilians, what we call aid workers, civilians. Um, so there's a lot of violence that occurs that's in the context of civil wars, but U.S. statistics tend to conflate the two. So we focus a lot on, I'll call it terrorism, in Iraq and Afghanistan, when it often involves actions in civil wars, and that's um, listed alongside things such as attacks on the U.S. homeland, attacks on allies that are done in places where there aren't clear war zones. And I think they're, they're analytically different, and I'd ask both of you, do you think that it's worth trying to separate out these categories, and is there value, or is it better to think of them as, as one big thing? So when the State Department does its annual report on terrorism, and it lists out all the attacks, does it include attacks that take place in the midst of civil wars like that? Uh, the answer is sometimes. Wow. And as, uh, as a scholar, that really makes it hard to use the databases because you're not getting either what we would say is a complete set or a representative set. You're getting a, a deliberate bias sample. Okay. Um, and then, of course, there's also the question of actors within civil conflicts um, who might use terrorist tactics but may or may not get labeled by the United States as terrorist groups, depending on America's own interests or concerns. So that, in a sense, when the U.S. government chooses whether or not to label a given act as terrorism, it's partly about whether we find it scary. There was a definition uh, given of terrorism by Brian Jenkins, one of the fathers of terrorism studies in the 1970s, where he said, uh, terrorism is what the bad guys do. And he was joking. But I think we still hit that. We see that with the state sponsorship list, right, where um, whether countries are on it or not uh, is really a political question. So Pakistan has never been on it, despite being probably the world's most active sponsor of terrorism. Uh, yet you have countries that historically we haven't liked, uh, Cuba being one, that for a long time did support terrorism, but haven't been active for some time, but no one wanted to take them off because, you know, no one wants to be nice to Cuba. You know, the law has an answer to this question, um, and nobody finds it satisfying, so nobody uses it in, in the scholarly um, world, which is, first of all, to distinguish between terrorism and war crimes, um, and to have a very precise set of definitions um, associated with, you know, what you are and are not allowed to do in the conduct of lawfully authorized force, right? So, you know, the rules of, of you know, the laws of war, or IHL as it's sort of called in, in the art, are fairly well known and you know you can be and they don't distinguish between the good guys and the bad guys the, the phenomenon Dan is talking about in civil conflicts you're talking about non-state actors which are not governed by the Geneva Conventions but by the the additional um, well so so but be careful because the the Geneva Conventions do and the additional protocols do offer protections um, for forces that fight in accordance with them. So if you're a non-state actor that wants to organize an army in conjunction with the Geneva, in, in, under the Geneva Conventions, uh, you know, you're, uh, you know, you're actually entitled to do that and to be considered part of an armed force for, for, for that. The thing is, nobody does, right? And so then you're left with this, left with this question, okay, do the do the insurgents 
because they necessarily don't organize themselves that way, inherently fall into these sort of bad guy categories? And is that then biasing to describe those categories in a way that necessarily criminalizes what Hamas does, but gives a lot of latitude to what Israel does? And so there ends up being this this theoretical answer that's very nice and very pure and very neutral that in actual practice, both both sides hate. Um, and that's true, you know, if you look at non-state actors that fight state actors, that's a pretty consistent theme across them. That is one thing you'll hear endlessly from them is, you know, almost the little brother phenomena, right, where it's it's not fair. Right. They would say the system's stacked against them, the rules are stacked against them, and that... Um, the them here are the non-state. The them are the non-state actors, right? That's and right. that no matter what they do, they're going to be labeled with these, what they would call normative labels, and then they, of course, in a somewhat annoying way, try to flip it. You know, we're not terrorists, they're terrorists, which just makes it even more annoying. But, here, but here's the really, I think, the really interesting question to it, which is that it goes, if you break that issue down to its barest... But it comes down to the question of, is there some legal entitlement to bear arms in a conflict, right? And so, you know, what... Don't some people claim that for the additional protocols? Well, so the additional protocols do have, there are affirmative obligations that, you know, that are, you know, the United States regards them as insufficiently stringent, but there are obligations. What if you're Hamas and you cannot effectively field a fighting force while complying with those obligations. Is the consequence of that, as the complaining terrorist groups have alleged since the 60s and 70s, you know, hey, the system was designed to, to screw us. We don't have to, we're not going to fight according to your rules. Or is the consequence of that that you actually don't have the legal authority to bear arms unless you can do it in some fashion in accordance with um, the laws well, of war. Well, but that's a tautology. I mean, states make these rules. These rules are designed to apply to states. If you can't act like a state, then you don't fall under the rules. That's precisely the, the, the challenge. You know, it's states trying to enforce stateness or states as the only legitimate actors under international law. Frankly, that seems to me um, a rigged game. So one can understand, on the one hand, where insurgent groups are coming from. On the other hand, one can understand states saying, well, you want to be a state, act like a state. And a lot of these groups don't want to be a state. They want to take over a state. Um, in, in a civil war context, they're fighting for control of a set of institutions that may or may not have broken down, but that used to exist, a set of borders that have been internationally recognized. They just want to garner control over that. What's interesting to me is, you know, take a group like Islamic, the so-called Islamic State or ISIS or ISIL, which is trying to establish itself as a state-like entity, but not in the for any state form that has been recognized by the international system. And, you know, they, they're not fighting in uniform yet, but they have a lot of other attributes of stateness. If they decided to impose a uniform on their fighting forces they would then fall under the Geneva Conventions and be bound by its obligations, but also um, protected by the protections that it offers. Well, do they, they have to, can I ask, I mean, do they have to be recognized? Because you have, you have Hamas in Gaza, you have South Ossetia, you have Transnistria, you have um, parts of Ukraine that 
they're quasi-states, right? You have a monopoly on force and often, you know, legitimate in the eyes of many inhabitants, right? So in a social science, Max Weber sense, it's a state. But these aren't recognized. And therefore, they don't have the rights and privileges and obligations. At least, that's my understanding. Well, so... This is a complicated area, and I am by no means an expert on the law of armed conflict. But my understanding is that the law of armed conflict um, demands compliance from all combatant forces. Um, whether what, what rights your forces have and privileges they have under them may be a function of how rigorously you yourself comply with them. So, for example, um, we do not treat Taliban soldiers captured uh, with the full list of privileges granted to POWs under the Third and uh, Third Geneva Convention. Um, and the reason is that the Taliban itself is not a force that behaves that way. If the Taliban did, we would be obligated to engage with it on that basis. But the conventions themselves are generally regarded as one or the other of the conventions is generally regarded as applying once you cross the level of there being an armed conflict at all. And that is why when um, the UN did its recent report on the Gaza on Gaza war crimes, it didn't take the position, you know, Hamas cannot commit war crimes because it's not a signatory party to the conventions. It took the position, these are universally applicable uh, under some combination of the conventions, Protocol 1 and customary international law, and they're kind of universal obligations, and in their view, both sides may have violated them. I, I actually think that's a that's a different discussion but well a, a profound uh, conversation to come out of a bit of swag Dan thanks for bringing the swag in the, the swag is awfully cool and I hope that government agencies realize that the bar has been raised and they need to, to match and ideally exceed what NCTC has done yeah you know there's, game guys there's there's some serious I mean we should all think about what different agencies should produce. It could be a contest. It could be a contest. Yeah. We had, you know, we had this great, I had this great find at the CIA gift shop that all of their t-shirts were made in Pakistan. And then a friend of mine uh, sent me a shirt from the NSA gift shop that was also made in Pakistan. So, you know, if you, um, I, I think this is, you know, figuring out where a different IC swag is made where what is on it that rational security listeners should be aware of, and what's the most tasteless bit of bling in the federal government? Ooh, uh, that is a that is a great question. In fact, I'd like to invite all of our rational security listeners to tweet at us or go on our Facebook page. So we're at RATL Security or uh, Spaghetti on the Wall Productions on Facebook, and tell us about the most tasteless government agency swag you've acquired. We want to know. You have your marching orders. <laughs> Inquiring minds want to know. Um, well, you know, I came to the recording of today's podcast hot from listening to President Obama's speech at American University, um, making his case on behalf of the Iran nuclear agreement. And, uh, and so, you know, to, to talk just a little bit, not only about the content of the speech, because I think 
as we've discussed before in the podcast, the um, talking points, arguments, both for and against this nuclear deal, have been repeated ad nauseum on the respective sides. Um, and I don't think that there were any new arguments in the president's speech today. Uh, but there were there were a couple of tactics, I would I guess I would say, that were striking about it. One is that, as he did on the very morning that the deal was announced, and I discussed this on the podcast before, he doubled down today on his argument that it's either this agreement or war. And he said, it's not just my speculation, this is a fact, and let me tell you how this is going to play out. Um, you know, if we don't get this deal and we don't try to constrain Iran's nuclear program under the terms of this deal, we only have one option to keep Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, and it's a military strike. And, you know, if we've learned anything over the last decade plus of war, uh, it's that wars in the Middle East are not simple, they're unpredictable. He called out people who supported the Iraq war in 2003 and reminded everybody that he opposed it at the time. Um, and, uh, and so he really doubled down on that argument. In fact, tonally, the way he spoke today, it was almost, I wouldn't say angry, but it was lecturing. It was impatient. His voice kept going up at the end of his sentences, as if, how come you can't understand that this is obviously the correct thing to do? And uh, and I thought that it was... Um, it's a it was sure an, way to win people over. Right. It was an interesting choice. Now, maybe that's just his genuine feeling at this stage of the game, but I wonder whether he wouldn't have won more flies with a little bit more honey or at least a sort of sober, confident, calm assessment of where things stand. So do you read that just um, as he's not trying to persuade anybody, he's trying to hold a third of the Democratic... He's trying to hold the Democratic base in the House because that's his firewall, and he's just got to prevent a relatively small number of Democratic defections, and he actually doesn't care about persuading anybody else. Um, I think to some extent, yes. There were a lot of lines in this speech that were aimed at the base, which, by the way, it's not just the Democratic base that is wary of American military engagement in the Middle East. This is something that you see on the Repu among supporters of the Republican Party as well. And right, so but he's not going to get any other votes in the he's House. He's not going to get Republican members necessarily, but he is voicing sentiments that are fairly broadly held in the American public. And so in that sense, it's not a narrow partisan argument. But in terms of political strategy, yeah, Ben, I think you're right, that he's not trying to persuade any Republicans. He's just trying to hold the Democratic caucus together. The other thing that was surprising to me in the speech is that he spoke directly, explicitly addressing Israeli objections to the deal. And, you know, while he maligned opponents of the deal um, as, you know, purveyors of fantasies about better deals and, and so on throughout the speech, he then carved out an explicit exception. He said there's one group of opponents that you know, he really can understand, and those are those who have a deep affinity with Israel. Israel's government opposes this deal. Um, you know, I have no doubt of Benjamin Netanyahu's sincerity, but I think he is wrong. I have, and some, then, I have some doubt of Obama's sincerity in, in, saying, in that saying that he, he has no doubt of Netanyahu's sincerity. You know, I, I think many people may doubt Obama's sincerity in saying that, and yet we have to give him credit for that. 
And, uh, and then he went on to lay out a set of arguments that were, in essence, an appeal directly to the Israeli people uh, and to supporters of Israel as to why he thinks this deal will make Israel safer than the available alternatives. And that was um, tactically a surprising choice, in some ways perhaps a risky choice, because in singling out Israel as this, you know, the international opponent friend of America and opponent of this deal. It really puts a spotlight on them. But it was also, I think, a response to some of what he has heard in the meetings that he's been holding reportedly with Jewish community leaders, with members of Congress, about the potential consequences for the U.S.-Israel relationship of this fierce disagreement over the Iran deal. And he's kind of saying, look, I get it. We're on opposite sides here, but I'm not maligning your motives. I'm not maligning your intentions. I, you know, I disagree with you on this. Um, but he, he said at one point, getting this right is worth some, um, tension, some temporary tension with Israel. And so it was a way of, of kind of trying to turn down the heat on the U.S. Israel dispute over this deal. My question is, will Netanyahu take that bait, or will he remain as resolutely opposed as he has been? My sense is that both sides are counting the votes pretty carefully. And so I see part of Obama's rhetorical logic is tied to the political situations of a few senators for whom this is a very important issue, yet they're still on the fence. right? So there are a few Democrats where... The Israel question will come up and, and decide their votes. So you really think this whole speech was a speech for Chuck Schumer? I think um, you could say Schumer, you could say Ben Cardin, you could say a whole uh, number of folks who, you know, some of whom are declaring some are not. But, but beyond that, I think Netanyahu needs to be smart, and he's very smart. He's also counting votes, and so the question on whether he takes the olive branch or not is going to depend a lot on whether he thinks he has a chance to defeat this thing. And if the answer in the end is no then I think he will still oppose it. But he may try to tone down the rhetoric as well. We'll see. It's interesting because there are voices in the Israeli security establishment and in the American Jewish establishment urging him to do just that, to recognize that this is a lost cause. What do you think, Ben? Um, I think it's going to be heavily dependent on the vote counts. And I think Netanyahu will not back off if he thinks he has the votes. And if he doesn't think... He has the, but this is majority leader Netanyahu now. Um, <laughs> if, if he doesn't think his whip, Mitch McConnell, has the votes, uh, then, then he, you'll, you'll see a, a different rhetoric emerge about how, you know, friends sometimes disagree and, you know, we want to, uh, you know, but, but as long as they think there's a chance of getting two thirds in both houses, I think they'll keep up a pretty full court press. Oh, and now I sigh a deep sigh because that means that we are resigned to at least four more weeks of this Iran debate. And I put debate in air quotes because it really is a dialogue of the deaf. Fortunately, some of that four weeks will be during recess. It's all now during (laughs) recess, and yet it goes on. But we have a, a Republican primary debate coming up on Thursday where I'm guessing the candidates will have something to say about this. I'm guessing they're going to work hard to outbid one another on this question. But in the meantime, let's move on to object lessons. And uh, Dan, you have a, a terrifying object with you. It's, it's quite large and heavy and intimidating. And it makes me think that you are about to go 
uh, fight in the wilds of Yemen. My question is, are you liberating Aden from the Houthis, or are you joining al-Qaeda in the hinterlands? I'm still making up my mind, but what I've brought to the podcast today is my jambia I got in Yemen 25 years ago or so. And it's important for several reasons to me. Uh, First of all, because I have a Jambia, I am a man. And uh, Ben, I'm looking around your office, and I, I don't see a Jambia. That's true. I just I, want to point that out. It's a problem. Uh, I'd just like to point out that I have a Scottish broadsword in my office. But I you've never you... brought it as your object lesson. But does that mean I am a man? And actually, I have to say, based on size, you are a bigger man than I. <laughs> <laughs> don't feel bad about that, Dan. <laughs> you know, I try and compensate. Um, what's also cool about it is it's it's at least somewhat old and historic and was made back when there was a vibrant Yemeni Jewish community. And that always makes me a little sad because uh, one thing that's happened in the Middle East, uh, rather tragically, is we've seen uh, some of the religious diversity collapse in you know the Jewish community, of course, uh, started to dissolve from the Arab world after uh, the creation of Israel. And then in recent years, we've seen the exodus of Christian communities around much of the Middle East. And considering, you know, some of these communities have been there for, for thousands of years, right? Not even, um, you know, a long time in an American sense. It, it's really depressing. But I brought the object in because it's also been a big week in Yemen. You know, we've seen real reversals on the battlefield. We've seen the United Arab Emirates deploy relatively significant ground troops in Yemen. Um, and uh, we've also seen al-Qaeda of the Arabian Peninsula make some more threats against the U.S. homeland. So even though Yemen, I suspect, is something that literally dozens of our podcast members care about, uh, it is important, and I wanted to bring it to everyone's attention. Wow. Are we winning or losing? Um, In Yemen, I think it's fair to say that there are no winners, Uh, and that we are actually, you know, helping our allies um, and trying to leverage this on other issues, which is not a not necessarily a foolish policy, but what's happening in Yemen is certainly bad for Yemen, but I also think bad for the Saudis and others who are involved. So just a, a word of explanation about the Jumpia itself. To what extent is this a ceremonial dagger, and to what extent are these things that people carry around and actually uh, use for, for self-defense or, or uh, offensive purposes? Um, almost entirely ceremonial. Um, one of the things about Yemen is... Uh, Small arms are not a are not a scarce resource there. So if people have a dispute, they you can reach for a much bigger sort of caliber item. Uh, so uh, this is something that's often given uh, to a young man um, upon reaching the threshold of manhood and is uh, you know is worn more symbolically than than for fighting purposes. Okay. Well, uh, congratulations on your induction into Al Qaeda, as marked by this beautiful uh, weapon. Ben, what's your object lesson? Well, my object lesson is uh, an email that was sent to me uh, by the uh, web platform, uh, the web educational platform edX, uh, which is a platform that does, you know, sort of online uh, um, courses from universities. And I was uh, looking at this email. It has, um, you know, there's a good course in thermodynamics and introduction to solar systems um, and, you know, financial programming and policies and introduction to bioelectricity. And right down, down there at the bottom, next to tropical coastal ecosystems, uh, is a little bit surprisingly... Introduction to Mao Zedong Thought, <laughs> with a picture of Mao um, looking out over 
you know, in, in a, a distant sort of visionary kind of way. Um, and uh, so if you go to edX, we'll, we'll provide a link for those of you who want to take this important class from Tsinghua University. Um, and it describes it as follows. Um, Mao Zedong founded the People's Republic of China in 1949, but who was he? And how did his theories, strategies, and policies shape modern China? Uh, this course introduces Mao Zedong thought and highlights how Chairman Mao's theories dramatically shaped and influenced the political foundation that China has become today. So uh, I don't know if this is the result of a cyber attack on edX by the People's Liberation Army. The course seemed a little out of place. Just thought I'd flag it for those who, you know, really want a course in the Little Red Book. Well, I have a lot to learn, so thanks for pointing out that resource, Ben. I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of our readers who will go from Yemen to Mao. <laughs> and there's almost certainly going to be several sessions on the mass killings that the chairman orchestrated, so it'll certainly be enlightening. Right. Indeed. Well, I brought for my object today, uh, I don't actually have the physical paper, um, but this is the cover of a newspaper, state-run newspaper that was published in Cairo this morning. This is Al-Akbar. And uh, you can see, Dan and Ben, that it has a beautiful sort of socialist realist style uh, depiction of uh, Chairman, I'm sorry, President Sisi steering the ship of state. Uh, he is surrounded by smiling children, none of whom you might notice is wearing a headscarf or any other mark of religious observance. Um, they are waving Egyptian flags, sailing down the Suez Canal, as a dove of peace uh, flies behind them, and massive construction projects uh, along the shore. And this is Al-Akbar's way of marking the opening of the new channel of the Suez Canal, which uh, Egypt invested $8 billion in building over the last year. Uh, they say that this will vastly increase government revenue, although uh, uh, an excellent Bloomberg news story from yesterday points out that there just isn't enough global trade through the canal to justify this new channel, and it, it will take a 9% increase in global trade annually uh, before this there'll be any demand for this canal. But in the meantime, look at the national pride. Um, this The $8 billion was financed privately. That is, many, many Egyptians um, bought bonds to pay for this thing, and the resulting uh, construction projects added, apparently, 4% to Egypt's GDP last year. Um, so it, it's also a wonderful pyramid scheme. Uh, and uh, congratulations to Egypt on what they are calling Egypt's gift to the world, the opening of the Suez Canal. And we look forward to seeing President Sisi sail into the sunset. And maybe edX can do a course on the thought of General Sisimo as he, um, as he, since the picture is so consistent with the photo of Mao Zedong in, in their course on Mao. Ooh, we should do a side by side of those separated two. Separated at birth. On our website. Uh, wow. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of Rational Security. Uh, I would like to thank, uh, our wonderful contributors, uh, Sophia Yan, who does the music in beginning, at the beginning and end of our show, and our producer and editor, Jen Patya Howell. 
Uh, you can find us, as always, on Twitter, at RATL Security, uh, and on Facebook. Please, if you download the podcast from iTunes or Stitcher or one of those other awesome places, leave us a review. It's the best way to let other folks know about the podcast. And uh, on behalf of myself, uh, our good friend Dan Byman. Dan, thanks for joining us. Thrilled. And Ben Wittes. Thanks, but not Raytheon. But not Raytheon, at least not yet. Uh, We'd like to thank you for joining us here on Rational Security. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 